week, I was reminded of a time when I experienced real fear. Fear of what was happening, fear of what would happen, fear of what could happen, not only to me, but to my family. This past Wednesday morning, as I was thinking about a scripture passage for this message, I discovered a live video stream sermon by a dear friend of mine from India, who was a fellow student at Dallas Theological Seminary. His name is Subhash. And Subhash is now the pastor of Crossroad Church in Bangalore, India. And Subhash and I became good friends during a difficult time in my life. In the winter of 2001, I'd been unemployed for several months. And while I'd been accepted to study at Dallas Theological Seminary, I was unable to find work, and the country was in a deep recession. In fact, the day after we put our house on the market to sell it, several businesses and companies in the area started laying people off, and people started selling whatever they could do to survive. Their boats, their RVs, their snowmobiles, they all went for sale immediately. And by April and May, Jan and I were getting pretty desperate. The house hadn't sold. We were without an income. So we decided that I should go on to Dallas by myself, find a job, find real work, start summer school at the seminary, and Jan and the kids would stay in Payette till the house sold. So I got on a plane. I flew to Phoenix, Arizona, where my brother-in-law picked me up at the airport, and he drove me to Mesa, Arizona, where Jan's folks lived. And I borrowed my father-in-law's van, drove across Arizona, New Mexico, and West Texas, a drive I don't recommend to anyone. And when I arrived in Dallas, I moved into the dormitory at Dallas Theological Seminary. I was 50 years old, unemployed, driving a borrowed van, living in a dorm 1,800 miles from my family. The first two weeks I was in Dallas, I was so homesick, I lost 20 pounds. And in all honesty, I was afraid. But Sue Bosch lived across the hall from me in Lincoln Hall, which we affectionately called Stinkin' Lincoln. <laughs> in fact, I still belong to, I survived Lincoln Hall group <laughs> from, uh, from Dallas Seminary. Sue Bosch was there alone waiting for his family to get their visas so they could come from India, which was a long, drawn-out process, and there was no guarantee they could even, even ever get their visas. And I was there alone waiting for my family to come from Idaho. And in a crummy economy, there's no guarantee that the house would ever sell or I could find a a job. And Subhash and I spent a lot of time in prayer and fellowship together. And we prayed for each other and for our families. Yet we both understood that you can be right in the center of God's will, doing what he called you to do and be exactly where He wants you to be, and you can still experience those things which make you afraid, even very much afraid for yourself and for those whom you love. On account of the coronavirus, the world is filled with fear. People fear for themselves. They fear for their health and the fear for others. They fear for their loved ones and their friends. They fear what will happen to the stock market and the economy and their 401ks and They fear the unknown. They fear the unseen. And they fear for what our country and our world is going to look like in the next few months, years maybe. Will it ever be the same again? If you have a Bible handy, turn to Psalm 56, the 56th Psalm in the Bible. 
We find the words of the psalmist David, a man who went through a time in his life that he had very much to fear. He feared for his life. David wrote this psalm when the insane king Saul was hunting him down. He was chasing him all over the country in order to kill him. And so David, alone and desperate, went to the land of his enemies to hide out. And of all places, he went to Gath. You might remember that the people of Gath were the Philistines. And they once had a champion giant warrior by the name of Goliath. And that a young David had killed Goliath with a sling and a stone and cut off the giant's head. And then the army of Israel routed the Philistines. You want to tell David, even as you read this, David, they don't like you very well in Gath. (laughs) Why would you go there? But nevertheless, David probably thinks he is somehow safer in Gath than he is in Israel. And he probably has no place else to go. And so David goes to King Achish of Gath, where he is seized by the Philistines. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 12 says that David greatly feared, greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. And this is the exact time and circumstance when David wrote this 56th Psalm. He says in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words, and their thoughts are are against me for evil. They attack. They lurk. They watch my steps. As they have waited to take my life, because of wickedness, cast them forth in anger, put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in a bottle, your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere God do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. If you, For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Notice that David pleads with God for him to be gracious. Be gracious to me, O God. The word translated gracious means to show favor. Show me your favor, O God. The word can mean to have mercy or it's used to mean pity, to be compassionate. David was in desperate need of God's favor and mercy. He was desperate. He was in a life-threatening situation, and he was afraid. He was greatly afraid. In fact, he had been in that situation for quite some time, first from trying to be kept from being killed by King Saul, and now he has King Achish threatening his life. So he calls upon the Lord. And in verses 1 through 7 of this 56th Psalm, we see the causes for fear, the causes for fear. Even though our situation with the coronavirus epidemic is different than David's, there are many similarities of his cause for fear that we go through now 
as well. First of all, David was under attack. In verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled on me. The Hebrew word translated trample means to crush. It's the idea of being snapped up like powerful, the powerful jaws of a lion as he gets you in his jaws and crushes a prey. David's enemies chased him all around the countryside, trying to crush him, biting at him, wanting to crush him. In verse 2, he says, My foes have trampled upon me all day long. It's never-ending. There's no getting away from it. How, how do you escape a virus that can affect you at any time? and seems to be all around us. We don't know where it was. It is. And secondly, David was oppressed. The second part of verse 1, or verse 2, for they, no, first, <laughs> excuse me, for, second part of, of verse 1, fighting all day long, he oppresses me. All day long, David's enemies oppress him. The word oppress means to, to squeeze, to afflict. The word is used of the Israelites who, in slavery in Egypt, were oppressed for 400 years. It's used of the oppression of God's people by the Babylonians and and the oppression of God's people during the time of the Israelites when Israel was under the judges. And we can just feel that same kind of oppression today, can't we? The virus dictates where we can go, what we can do, who we can meet with, what we can buy and what we can't buy. And in verse 2, we also see David's fight. My foes had trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. All of Saul's army was fighting against David, and now all of the Philistines. And in verse 5, we see David's strife. The fifth verse. All day long they distort my words. The Hebrew word translated distort here literally means they twist my words, to twist, in a way that causes strife. David's enemies were twisting his words to try to make it seem like David was the bad guy in all of this. Well, David says this, and he says the other thing. The trouble he is in is his own fault. And this was the time before social media and fake news and Facebook. How can you tell what is true today and what is not true? The world is filled with strife as people are twisting words. And in verse 5, we also see the plot to harm David. All day long they distort my words and their thoughts are against me for evil. David's enemies plotted against him. And in verse 6 we see that the enemies stalked David. They watched his every move. They attack. They lurk. They watch my steps. David's enemies lurked in the darkness. They hid behind trees. They were an unseen enemy waiting to attack. They stalked him. They waited for him for just the right moment when he would put his guard down And they would crush him. And in verse 6, we see that they wanted to take him out. They wanted to kill him. As they have waited to take my life. I don't think there's anything that can be more fearful than an unseen microscopic enemy that could take your health, that could take your life, or the life of a loved one at, at any given moment. 
When we put our guard down, we don't wash our hands just right or practice the right social distancing, when we have not cleaned or disaffected just right, we have that feeling that it could just take us out. And this is the kind of fear that was experienced by David. David wrote this psalm at the lowest point of his life. He was fearful of everyone around him and everything around him. There was no one he could trust. He was alone in Gath. He feared for his life. He had lived for years in a fight-or-flight mode, adrenaline constantly surging through, his, surging through his veins, sleepless nights, constantly on the alert. The pressure was unbearable. So what does David say are the results of his fear? What does this cause David to do? It causes him to pray. He drops to his knees in prayer, and his fear causes him also to do something else that is amazing. We see it in verse 3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Why is David able to put his trust in God? How is he able to do that? In Psalm 56 here, we see two specific ways that David handled his fear. My friend Subosh calls these spiritual tools. These are spiritual tools that David used to handle his fear. And these are very helpful for us today. They're spiritual tools and that we can use and, and I can use to handle our fears, whatever the fear might be when we are afraid. And, and the first is, is prayer. The entire 56th Psalm is a prayer. David addresses to God. He addresses God specifically eight times. He, he begins, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. In verse 3, he says, in you, God, I put my trust. What is David doing here in his prayer? What David is doing is he is using his prayer as a tool to transfer his anxiety to God. In you, God, I put my trust. The best thing we can do when we have this pandemic fear is to transfer our anxiety to God. We have a hard time doing that, I think, because we go before God, we beseech Him to bestow mercy and grace upon us, we cast all our cares upon Him, and there's a really neat word in the Hebrew that tells us how to lay our cares before God. The word is usually translated commit, commit. The Hebrew word is galal, G-A-L-A-L. For example, it's used in Psalm 22, verse 8, where it says, Commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver you. And in Proverbs 16.3, commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The word translated commit, galal, means to roll. To roll as a rolling stone would roll. In other words, roll it onto God. Roll yourself onto God. Roll your works onto the Lord. Roll your cares upon him. And there's a negative example of the use of the word in Psalm 26, verse 27. And this is what happens to the guy who tries to solve his problems himself. The second part of the verse says, And he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. He who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. 
And here's a guy who wants to roll a large stone up a hill. That's his activity. That's his plan. That's what he has to do. That's what he wants to do to solve his problem. It's a big hill. It's a big stone. Sounds a lot like a pandemic, doesn't it? So how does he approach it? If he's like you or me, he plans out the route. How do you go around that tree? He looks for potential obstacles, and he tries to figure it out, and he formulates a plan. And he gets some small stones that he can prop under his progress, same way like putting a stone behind a tire on a car so it doesn't roll so the car won't move. And maybe he gets some big sticks he can use as levers. And he begins to muscle that stone up the hill. And he has a good plan. And he sweats and he toils and he props stones under it. But when his strength gives out, paraphrase, the rolling stone gathers the man who pushes it. Yes, we should be doing the proper things to prevent being infected by the virus and to protect ourselves and those that are vulnerable. We should and must do all the things that are suggested and mandated. We should plan for isolation and social distancing and stock up on certain foods and supplies and medicines, but we must not do it solely in our own strength or it's going to come back on us. We must roll all our anxiety onto God. Otherwise, our anxiety will either paralyze us or make us do the wrong things. King Hezekiah was a godly man, and he was a close friend of the prophet Isaiah. And Hezekiah ruled Judah during a very dangerous and precarious time. The dreaded and feared Assyrians had totally demolished and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, just north of Judah. And then they came at Judah. And for a while, Hezekiah paid the demanded tribute to Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Protection money that he paid to three tribal kings who were soaking Judah dry. And finally, after years of this tyranny, Hezekiah refused to pay it. He firmly believed that was not God's will. That was not God's plan for Judah to be under the heavy hand of the Assyrians. So he told the cronies of Sennacherib to go suck grapes or something like that. And the three tribal kings sent a threatening letter to Hezekiah, threatening to do the exact same thing to Judah that they had done to the northern kingdom. Totally take them out. And how did Hezekiah know that he'd already done the right thing by refusing to pay the tribute? That his plan was right? How would he know what to do now? Isaiah tells us, Then Hezekiah took the letter, and the letter would have been in form of a scroll in those days. He took the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he went up to the house of the Lord, and he rolled it out. He rolled the scroll out before the Lord. That's our word. He rolled it on to God. He trusted God with it. Hezekiah did what he knew was the right thing to do. He rolled it on to God. He spread it out before the Lord, left it there, and God let him know what God's plan was. You've done the right thing here, Hezekiah. And it resulted in an angel of the Lord taking out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. That's pretty good confirmation. So let me give you a simple and direct application. Constantly and consistently lay it out before God. Lay it out before God. 
With this virus, we do the right things. We practice the social distancing. We wash our hands. We disinfect and clean, clean, clean. We self-isolate when we should. We do this not only for ourselves, but for the vulnerable people who will die or get deathly ill. And we take our plans and our anxiety. We roll it out unto him. And God does two wonderful things. He confirms our plans, and he lets us know that we're doing the right things. Or else he lets us know what else we can do. And he keeps our anxiety. He keeps our anxiety. So go before God and roll it out. And don't pick it back up. Because when you pick it back up, what? That's time for you to pray again. You can trust God with it, right? Stay in prayer till he takes away your anxiety. And when you're anxious again and fearful again, go to your knees and roll it back out on him again. So the first spiritual tool to deal with our fears is prayer. And the second tool is to trust God and his word. Verse 4, In God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? And the psalmist repeats it in verse 10. It's like a refrain in this psalm. Verse 10, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Here we see something that's important to, to understand. To trust in God is somewhat different than faith in God. Faith in God is taking God at his word. Faith is not something that we generate. It's not something we muster to try to have more faith. Faith is, if God says, I will take care of your every need, and we believe it, that's faith. If God tells Moses to strike the water of the Red Sea and the sea recedes, that is faith. If God says that he'll supply all of our riches according to his needs, or all of our needs according to his riches in glory, and we believe it, that's faith. If God tells Abram to go and go out to a place not knowing where he was going, and he goes, and he believes it and goes, that is faith. But trust in God is more than that. Faith is taking God at his word, believing it, while trusting in God is fully relying upon him. The word translated trust, when the psalmist says, I will put my trust in you, is a Hebrew word that is used to cling to, to hold fast to something, to rely completely on something, as leaning on a stick, a rod that will not let you down, that will not splinter, that will not break. And notice that unlike faith, trust is an act of the will. He says, I will put my trust in you. I will rely upon you. In other words, when David was afraid, he clung to the Lord. He held on to him as tightly as he could. The Scottish preacher Andrew McLaren used the illustration of a man who was walking up a narrow, rocky path. And the footing keeps giving way under his feet, and his limbs are trembling, and his head reels. And he thinks it's all over. He's going to fall to his death. And suddenly he grasps the strong hand of the man in front of him or he lashes himself to that man by a rope and then he can walk steadily up the path, relying totally 
on the strength of the man in front of him who sees him to safety. McLaren used the example of the lame man healed by Peter and John. Remember that? Peter and John were going to the temple to pray, and they come across this man who had been lame from birth. And they said, in the name of our name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And, and Peter and John reached out and grabbed a hold of the man as he grabbed a hold of them. And McLaren writes of this man, all his life long he had been lame. When at last his healing comes, one can fancy with what a tight grasp The lame man held Peter and John. The timidity and helplessness of a lifetime made him hold fast. Even while walking and leaping, he tried how the unaccustomed feet and ankle bones could do their work. How he would clutch the arms of his two supporters and feel himself firm and safe only as he grasped them. McLaren says, you see, that is trust, cleaving to Christ, twining around him with all the tendrils of our hearts as the vine does around the pole, holding to him by his hand as a tottering man does by the strong hand that upholds. Remember that in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That really should be a spiritual no-brainer, right? We don't have the coronavirus figured out. It's going to take a while for the scientists and the researchers that that God has blessed our world and our country with to, to figure out some things we won't even totally understand. We understand a few things related to doing some things, but we sure don't want to lean on our own understanding because that is the opposite of trusting in the Lord. In God I will put my trust, I will not fear. The world is full of dark possibilities and uncertainties, disasters, losses, disappointments, sickness, death, all these things that keep going on daily in people's lives, even though that's separate from the coronavirus. And, And any one of these can come to us at any moment. But if we have a firm hand upon God, we will not be afraid. You can lean all your weight on God as a strong staff. And depend upon him. And he will support you. He will never yield. He will never crack. So the psalmist displays the ultimate trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Well, mere man can take my life, but he cannot take my salvation. He can take my life, but he cannot take away heaven's glories. He can take my life, but he cannot take away my relationship with my Savior. He can try to make me be afraid, but he cannot take away my trust and my faith in God. And here's the real cool thing. Maybe I'm stretching the metaphors a little bit too far, but it'll help us understand this important point. When I roll all my cares upon the Lord, when I take everything out of my hands and roll all my anxieties open-handed to him, When I take everything out of my hands and give them to God, what? My hands are free to hold on to God, to fully rely upon Him. And fear is turned in to confidence. Verse 12 of this 56th chapter of Psalms. Your vows are binding upon me, O Lord. I will render thank offerings to you. 
For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Notice that future tense of this. I will, I will render thank offerings to you. The psalmist by faith, the faith that God will see him through, trusting in God, the psalmist is already ready to give thanks to God. And finally, we have those precious, precious truths in verses 8 and 9. You have taken account of my wonderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. God is for you. And he does not disregard your suffering. Sleepless nights, many hours spent in torment and weeping are not endured in vain as far as God is concerned. Our suffering, as it were, is capital invested with God, written in his book, collected by him. This I know that God is for me. God is for you. Fear is turned into confidence. You see... Stinkin' Lincoln was not the end of my story or even the end of part of it. I could tell you about God's faithfulness by blessing me to be able to work in international ministries at Insight for Living while we were in Dallas, Texas, and how Subash's family actually got to Dallas before mine. Or I could tell you that I have a plane ticket that's dated September 11, 2001, 9-11, that I didn't have to use. And I could tell how God was faithful in moving my family to Dallas literally on 9-11 and, and taking care of every one of our, our needs. And I can tell you about how God's faithful to, to Subosh, where now he pastors a church where they are consistently and constantly training and sending out church planters to go into India. You see, that's what God does with all our stories. He shows us he is faithful when we pray, when we roll our anxieties and whatever it is upon Him, when we trust in Him and His Word and nothing is wasted. And He will do the same with all your stories, your stories as well. Not only those that are prefaced by stinking Lincoln or 9-11, but those who are prefaced now by the coronavirus as well. And we look forward at faith and hope that we will once again be able to gather as the body of Christ in our churches and in our homes and be able to minister physically to one another as God has called the body of Christ to do. But in the meantime, we realize that the body of Christ, the church, is not the building. The church, the building, is not, <laughs> yeah, the building is not the church. We are the church. And God has given us the opportunity to minister to one another in very wonderful ways. So keep in touch with those that you know that are lonely and isolated by phone, by email, however you can. But uh, especially by phone. They, they need to hear your voice. You need to hear the voice of others. And we thank you for this time that we have spent together. And we ask now that we will ask God to continue to bless us through this very difficult time. Our Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for prayer. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who is with us and in us. And uh, Father, that uh, though we are separated by distance physically and in isolation, Father, we thank you that we are not separated and isolated spiritually. We are still one body, one faith, one church. And yet it is your Holy Spirit, it is you, God, that binds us together. Father, I thank you that we can pray for others that are thousands of miles away. We can pray for others that are still just down the block, Father. And we can still communicate with one another, Father. And I pray, Father, that uh, you will show us how to meet one another's needs physically, Father, and overcome the challenges that are going on at this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.